Welcome to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the impacts to business development companies, or BDCs, as a result of COVID-19. Investment managers are facing an environment of enormous challenges and opportunities. And during this unprecedented economic downturn caused by COVID-19, those challenges and opportunities are even more pronounced. Investment managers are seeking perspectives on regulatory updates, operational and valuation challenges, potential tax implications, and trends in the marketplace. KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives podcast features KPMG partners addressing the issues that are of most concern now and in the future. My name is Sean McKee, National Practice Leader for KPMG's Public Investment Management Practice, and your host for today's discussion. Joining me today are Deirdre Fortune, Matt Giordano, and Andrew Parsons. Deirdre, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yes, Sean. Um, my name is Deirdre Fortune. I'm a tax partner, and I'm also the Deputy Tax Lead for the Public Investment Management Industry. I've been working in this area for over 20 years, and I've seen the ebbs and flows in the industry. And from an accent standpoint, I'm originally from Ireland. Great. Andrew? Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Andrew Parsons. I'm an audit partner in our New York financial services practice, uh, and I'm responsible for a range of uh, public and private fund clients uh, with over 20 years of experience. And uh, like Deirdre, I'm also a foreign national, having started my career in KPMG in the UK. Fantastic. And Matt? Hi, Sean. My name is Matt Giordano. I'm the Deputy Lead Partner of the Public Investment Management Practice, and I'm here to help answer any of the regulatory questions that come up. In a previous life, about three years ago, I spent five years at the SEC, where I was formerly the Chief Accountant in the Division of Investment Management. So looking forward to, to joining this podcast. All right. Fantastic. So let me uh, describe a little bit about the episode that we have today. Uh, we'll be talking about COVID-19 and the resulting financial crisis and the fact that that's testing market liquidity, portfolio company business models, and valuation policies and procedures in ways that have not been tested since the Great Recession. This podcast will provide an overview of the most important things that business development companies or BDC management should think about in terms of navigating these challenges. So with that, while we get started, and I think what would be great to start with is to kind of get an overview of what each of you are seeing in the market. So Andrew, why don't we start with you? Well, uh, thank you, Sean. Let me just preface our comments by stating that this has been a period characterized by significant volatility, and new developments are evolving quickly, impacting many facets of our professional and, and personal lives. New information related to the virus and government actions continuing to, uh, continue to impact our environment. And, and so any points that are made here today, while relevant today, should be taken in that context. Regarding operational challenges, uh, Sean, the first and most obvious is clearly the change in physical location that we've all had to rapidly transition to. 
Working from home for many remains a significant daily test. And while most business continuity plans will have factored in alternative office locations, not many would have had plans for the social distancing that is on the scale that we've encountered. But in addition to an investment manager's own staff, it's their key service providers, such as the administrators or printers, that are unable to maintain the same service turnaround time or quality as prior to the pandemic. Uh, the incremental time requirements that have had to be introduced to each stage of a manager's business processes can lead to a financial reporting time frame being quite elongated and more of a concern perhaps is it's potentially less robust. One significant challenge that most managers have been contending with is that of appropriately valuing their portfolios. With the incredible levels of volatility and sudden widening of credit spreads, many investment managers will be looking at substantial unrealized losses having to be recognized this quarter. The actual impact of the current economic environment on portfolio companies may not be fully known by managers yet, which could lead to further losses being recognized in the next quarter also. And, and related to this, uh, as the credit risk of borrowers becomes less clear and cash levels become a critical focus area of both the investment managers and portfolio companies, the resulting reduced market liquidity presents concerns that are further stressing business processes and valuations. This environment will certainly force many portfolio companies to look at amending their credit terms or restructure borrowing agreements, potentially having gap uh, financial reporting ramifications and, of course, tax implications, uh, Deirdre. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So these are certainly areas that we're seeing the ramifications of from a tax perspective. They've been elevated by the fact that in order for a BDC that is taxed as a regulated investment company to avail of its favorable tax treatment of having no entity-level tax, it needs to meet certain distribution requirements. So we're definitely seeing that fund management working closely with its treasury function to look at what forecasting of future cash they will have and what the implications of restructuring loans or changing loans from being cash to in-kind. And then also at the fact that looking at their own cash situation, whether there is alternative distribution strategies and cash conservation that they need to look at to do. So from Congress and the IRS and the Treasury, we're seeing their willingness to work with taxpayers in order to minimize the long-term consequences to investors in the capital markets. First of all, seeing the income tax payment and, and filing relief, the CARES Act, and then the implications from the CARES Act, and then also, you know, certain items that specifically relate to BDCs, more of their corporate blockers if they have such. So I think from a regulatory standpoint, both from more of the IRS standpoint, and I think they being sympathetic with that, I think, Matt, from a regulatory side or SEC side, that's definitely something that we're seeing. Sure, Deidre. I, I completely agree with you. And I, I think I wanted to start off by saying I was really impressed by how quickly the SEC and the commissioners and the staff responded to the crisis. Uh, they granted some, some well-needed relief 
um, and they issued the number of no action letters. I thought generally it was quick, it was thoughtful. The relief really didn't loosen shareholder protections. There may have been um, some modification to certain rules, but I thought the commissioners and staff did a great job of finding that balance and implementing the guardrails to protect investors and also allowing management and the capital markets to really work during this tough COVID-19 environment. And most notably, there were two orders that the commission released in mid-March. The first was around uh, board meetings. The commission granted temporary release to board meetings of investment companies, including business development companies around the in-person voting requirements. They also gave certain release to forms, including K's and Q's, and also to some, some of the other forms that we see advisors file, including ADV or, or PF. Um, so the relief was needed, and we do see some of our clients relying on that relief. Uh, certainly the board meetings, uh, as well as the forms. Also, the SEC has given relief to BDCs around their asset coverage ratios. Uh, this relief is temporary. Um, it does have some tight parameters around the modified asset coverage calculation, including the fact that any realized losses in the portfolio that are due to permanent impairment of an investment, you essentially can't use those values as part of your modified asset coverage calculation. And the SEC does give examples in one of the footnotes what they mean by permanent impairment. So again, that, that is a, um, a difficult test. And there are some other parameters around using that modified asset coverage calculation that folks should really look at. The first is that if you rely on relief and your asset coverage ratio is below 150%, essentially you can't invest in a new portfolio company within 90 days or until you're back over that asset coverage ratio of 150. Um, also, and, and, and this is one of the, the stringent parts to the relief, if you ask me, the board would need to hire an independent evaluator and get advice from that independent evaluator regarding the terms and the conditions of the proposed issuance or sale of another senior security. And essentially, the independent evaluator would have to say that it's fair and reasonable compared to similar issuances. So again, um, two big hurdles to get over related to that asset coverage release. Um, another item just to mention is that the SEC recently issued a proposal that's aimed at modernizing fund and business development company valuation framework for boards and advisors. It's a very lengthy proposal, so I won't get into the details, but high level, it really allows the board to delegate a number of the required fair value determination functions to the advisor with proper oversight from the board. And from a board standpoint, I think that this really gives the board more clarity on what the SEC would expect to see with regards to the oversight evaluation process. Um, if the proposal is adopted, it would rescind some of the old ASRs or the accounting staff releases that are out there, including 113 and 118. Of course, 118 has auditing requirements in it as well. It requires us to value 100% of an investment company's holdings. Uh, without that requirement, we would sample and there would be a risk-based sampling technique. So I, I wanted to mention that as well. That's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Uh, that's, I was going to say, that's been a long time coming, hasn't it, uh, Matt? 
Andrew, it, it has been a long time coming, and this isn't the fair value guidance that I think most people thought of. It's very principle-based. It's very focused on boards versus being prescriptive, and, and it's it will certainly help boards with determining what they need to do, what they have to do from an oversight function, and what they can delegate to the advisor. So I think the release in the proposal is much welcomed by the industry. It'd be interesting to see the comments. I think the proposal period's uh, uh, over the summer, so it'll certainly be interesting to see the uh, the responses that are uh, that are generated. Indeed. Well, those are very interesting observations covering the market tax and regulatory environment. Uh, I'm interested in how we are seeing people respond to these developments. So, Andrew, why don't I start with you and just ask, how are you seeing management and the board respond to these developments? Yeah, well, thank you, Sean. Um, again, the most obvious is related to the moving to a virtual environment. And, and, and ensuring that there's a regular cadence of communication and keeping the team environment intact as much as possible. The online environment requires its own type of meeting etiquette to keep meetings effective and productive. And this again is, uh, as in so much, where tone at the top is so important. Following from what I said earlier, uh, the increased focus on cash and the budget and forecasting process which has become for many managers a daily process involving reporting to senior management um, and communication is critical and particularly so to the board, ensuring that they're getting timely updates from management so that they can focus on the response to new and evolving risks, which include the oversight of the potentially stressed control environment in this remote working structure. And, and their responsibility for the oversight of high-quality financial reporting, uh, which obviously would include uh, appropriate related disclosures, uh, and of course keeping an eye focused on the possible increased risk of improper financial reporting uh, in this environment. Deirdre, obviously from a tax perspective as well, uh, what changes are you seeing? Yeah, so following on from the focus on, on cash budgeting and forecasting, that I think is, is the primary focus from the tax perspective as well. So what we're really seeing is people looking at more the cash conservation and alternative distribution strategies. So the elective stock dividends, which publicly offered BDCs that are taxed as RICs, they can use this stock distribution provided they meet certain conditions where there's at least 20% is cash. They can get, have that whole 100%, so the 80% stock and the 20% cash, have that all treated as a distribution for tax purposes. So that's more of the internal focus. And then also what they're looking at too is we've seen some folks look at a rights offering uh, to raise cash. Obviously, that may dilute the value of the shares, but it's a way of getting cash in the door quicker. Um, others, we've seen some share repurchase or debt repurchase programs where um, being that the values of the, the stock are decreased and the possibility to, when you do that, to be able to get a dividend paid deduction where you have a share repurchase. On the other side, if you are looking to repurchase um, any debt issued or convertible notes issued, that seems to be an area that people are looking at as well. 
but the consequences of that when it comes to the debt is that potentially because of the discount that may be treated from a tax perspective as cancellation of debt income. So that may be a, a trap that folks may fall into, but just to be aware of that. On the side of the cash conservation, you know, obviously the portfolio companies are also looking at their cash situation. So, you know, we're having the BDCs be kind of proactive, seeing those going out to the portfolio companies, seeing if they're can, what modifications or changes that they may want to make to loans if they feel that it's uh, something that will be an issue for their underlying portfolio companies. And looking from the portfolio company side in moving from cash payments to payments in kind, if we're doing restructurings, what that would impact on if the loans are being modified to push out maybe payments to a further period, what that implications are for, from a tax perspective. Andrew, you mentioned before the ramifications from the gap. They may be different when it comes to the tax. And then also, on, you know, the non-accruals or the write-off of loans. You know, tax has a higher bar in order to be able to turn on the non-accrual or even have a worthless deduction that is a higher standard. So I think folks are really looking at what these implications are and getting more educated and being able to include these observations in their forecasting to see what that will mean from a cash perspective going forward. So then the response from the IRS and, and Treasury has been great and very swift similar to the, the SEC, kind of at a holistic level with the CARES Act. But then there have been a couple of items for BDCs that have underlying blockers where there has been relief when it comes to the carryback of NOLs for corporate entities, and then also relief in relation to interest um, expense limitation, which has gone from the 30% to 50%. So that adds a little um, relief there when it comes to the underlying block or corporations that BDCs may have. So a lot of response and a lot of focus on that uh, projections and forecasting. Cash has become the primary focus indeed. Sure, and, and Sean, maybe to take this from the regulatory standpoint, you know, a couple points that Deidre made I, I thought were interesting and also what Andrew mentioned. And a couple that I would point out is the non-accrual. I, I think folks have to be very careful and very cognizant to watch their loans. And if there is degradation, you really have to watch that non-accrual status and make sure that you're moving loans to non-accrual if, if you're not getting paid for them, right? And it's very easy for the regulators to come back years later and second guess whether or not you should have put those on non-accrual status. Um, or not. So I would say focus on that. Another point I'd like to make is that, you know, I was chatting with a number of attorneys in the industry the other day, and no one has seen a slowdown in OC exams. So I would make sure that you're ready to handle an OC exam if one comes up, um, even in this remote environment. And 
if anything, we are seeing from the SEC staff a lot of questions around business continuity plans of both the advisor and the advisor's service providers. So I would make sure that you have a good handle and a good understanding on your business continuity plan and also those plans of your um, and also those plans of your service providers. Great. So given we've covered the developments and responses, let's take a moment to dive a little deeper into the outcomes of those responses. Andrew, what are your thoughts as to the outcomes? Well, uh, I mean, managers clearly are working with their investee companies to assist them uh, with their treasury forecasting uh, and looking at ways that interest payments can be adjusted. Uh, and just to Matt's point, uh, you know, you, they need to adjust these interest payments to be able to accommodate the portfolio company to help them see that or to help them, uh, the portfolio company to help them see through this current downturn. Whether interest is suspended uh, for a limited period or deferred, which in general, uh, under gap reporting, the SEC have indicated would depending on certain facts and circumstances, in both cases result in interest accruals being booked during that suspension period. Um, managers may offer uh, PIK or the payment in kind terms to borrowers, uh, but of course there are significant uh, implications, uh, as Deirdre mentioned, to the, uh, the tax uh, versus gap uh, treatments. Um, I think that uh, the loan modifications, uh, I mean, Deirdre, with regard to commenting on the, the phantom income aspects of the modifications, uh, certainly something that managers should be thinking about uh, for tax reporting. Is that the case? Yes. So as Matt had mentioned, I think the non-accruals is probably the, the top one that we're dealing with first before we go to significant modifications or worklessness. But from an income perspective and a cash perspective, even if it goes on to non-accrual from a gap perspective, the bar from a tax perspective is much higher. And normally, we need an actual identifiable event in order to, to uh, not accrue for tax purposes. So being in, the borrower being insolvent or in bankruptcy, so that bar is a little higher both for the stated interest and for the OID. So I think that is will have an impact of having income that would need to be recorded and distributed. So that is something to be closely monitoring. When it comes to the, the loan modifications, Andrew, that is something that, you know, from again, from a gap and tax perspective, that we may have differences depending on what those modifications are. So from a tax perspective, significant modification, as the term is for tax, you know, that can be a change in the yield, you know, material deferral of the schedule payments, so items changing the obligator, things like this, that we really need to look closer at from a tax perspective, that from the gaps, there may be no change, but from a tax perspective, you could have some of that acceleration of that income that we really need to factor in into this forecasting. So that's certainly one of the outcomes. And obviously, with the as we get more into where we, into the future, how this will really, you know, outcome, there will be future outcomes uh, that we will see as well. 
Yeah, very much. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, Deirdre, obviously there are certain tax uh, implications, but uh, from the GAP perspective, I think a lot of it certainly uh, centres around the judgment that's required by the, man by the manager in assessing uh, when to accrue and, and how much to accrue, uh, uh, given the underlying circumstances of their portfolio company. Yeah, I would say another outcome is just incredibly challenging fair value estimates. And I think this is an area where we all need to be careful is around the fair value of some of these hard to value investments. And there's always this tendency during market turmoil to want to throw out a model that's not working exactly how you want it to, or to claim that um, there's full dislocation in, in the market. And a couple points I want to just make here. If you have a model that you've calibrated and that's working well in, in most conditions, it's very hard to sit back and say that the model isn't working because of pure market dislocation. So I, I would say be careful about just throwing a model out and using a different model. Um, it, it may be okay to do so, but I think you have to have a lot of documentation because it'll be very easy to second guess that uh, determination or, or, or the reasons why you threw that model out. Um, and then the other thing to remember is that the SEC staff and the FASB, and, and the FASB, FASB recently said this again, is that you can't claim that there's full market dislocation. So I would just make sure when you're thinking about fair values, just think about what you could sell it for today versus saying, okay, we're going to hold this. The market's dislocated. We're going to actually get more for this in a couple months because that's where you really get yourself into trouble. Um, the other challenge, of course, is liquidity, and, and we could spend this whole podcast talking about liquidity, but I think there will be some liquidity challenges for portfolio companies that are out there. Uh, we talked about loan modifications and whatnot, but I, I think that those will be big outcomes. Great, thanks. Those were all very interesting outcomes. So as we wrap this up, I'd like to get uh, each of your parting tips uh, that you have for our audience. Uh, Andrew, why don't we start with you? Yeah, okay, Sean. Um, well, uh, managers and those charged with governance, they need to be especially vigilant in the, with the increased potential of cyber threats during this uh, stress time. One of the biggest risk areas is uh, embedded links within emails. The pandemic has unleashed basically a whole new avenue of attack for bad actors. Um, similar to that, uh, password protecting documents that are being circulated for the virtual meetings, as most of those documents will contain sensitive confidential information. Uh, and uh, given the apparent risks with some of the virtual meeting hosting platforms, uh, ensuring you're using the latest versions of those hosting platform software uh, is obviously important um, and maybe you know, ensuring that you're doing it through a VPN. Another point I'd highlight is perhaps to start now thinking what positives from this current environment we can take uh, for when the new normal is here, assuming that this isn't the new normal. Deirdre? Yeah, I think um, from a tax perspective, uh, the most important thing is to know what the tax impact of a decision that you're making, be it an alternative distribution strategy, being it the significant modification, being it the non-accrual, because at the end of the day, the BDCs need to make the distribution out. So 
to be aware of what the tax impacts are. I think that's probably the, the top item you want to make sure. And then obviously in your forecasting, constantly you know, forecast and refine. And for those situations where you know, we have the write-offs or the non-accruals, you know, to make sure you have the, the documentation to support it, later on down the line, the IRS comes back to look at that. We want to make sure we're fully, uh, fully buttoned down on that to make sure everything that we've done during this crazy time can can be uh, accounted for. Everything that we have done and decisions that we have made during this time um, can be substantiated. Great, Matt. Sure, Sean. When I think of tips, there's a couple that I would point out. We talked a little bit about valuation. Just keep exit price in mind. Uh, the second is now is a really good time to sit back, reread, reevaluate your risk disclosures, and just ensure that they're accurate and they're robust. And you know, the final thing that I would I would leave you with is, generally speaking, if you're in doubt, consult with your auditors, consult with counsel, and if necessary, consult with the SEC staff. You know, when I was on the staff, we got calls all the time. Uh, don't be scared to consult with the staff on something and, and lean on your uh, service providers, your auditors, and your attorneys to, to help you with that. It, it, it can pay dividends in the long run. Very good advice. All right. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Deirdre, Matt, and Andrew for sharing their insights. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. You can look for other KPMG Investment Management podcasts from wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives podcast. For more information, go to listen.kpmg.us slash imperspectives and be sure to subscribe to this podcast series to be notified of new episodes.